there, it's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. As you look out in the world, do you understand what is going on in the world today? What the problems are, the real problems are with the world? You might be able to identify some individual problems here and there, but what is the overarching, the real, the great underlying problem with the world, with humanity? Well, that is actually what we're looking at in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Last week we looked at verse 1, today we're looking at verse 2, next week we'll look at verse 3. We really want to dive in deep on what this problem is so that we properly understand it. So today we'll be looking at Ephesians 2.2. There's three main phrases in Ephesians 2.2, and all of them point to one single underlying reality as the identity of our problem. So that is what we're looking at today in Ephesians 2.2. Now, before we do that, we will be answering a question from our reader about hell and ultimate reconciliation as well. So if that's uh, something you want to learn about, then that's where we're headed next. Incoming! (laughs) (laughs) That's from that old game. Uh, What is that? I think that's pigs, right? Or, yeah... Pigs or worms? Anyway, I don't remember. Um, Ultimate reconciliation. Here's the question from the reader or listener about ultimate reconciliation. Do you think the ultimate restoration of all things, uh, parentheses, not the same thing as universalism, though people could get nervous and think so, is possible? All right. Pretty succinct question. I like it. So, Uh, I do address this question in my book, What is Hell? So if you haven't uh, got a copy of that book, you can get that on Amazon or wherever. But uh, let me briefly sort of summarize what I write in the book. First of all, there's three main views. If you've never heard of ultimate reconciliation or ultimate restoration, um, three main views about hell. It's, it's, It's a question related to hell. There's three main views about hell that you sort of need to understand before we can discuss ultimate reconciliation. Uh, let me just summarize those for you as well. The, the the first view, the common view, the one that most people are familiar with is eternal conscious torment, ECT. And this is the view that unregenerate, unbelieving people will go to a place of suffering and torment where they will spend all eternity in pain and agony. All right, that's eternal conscious torment. The second common view or second main view of hell is uh, universalism, which was there briefly mentioned in the question. This is the view that basically there is no hell. Everybody is going to end up with God in eternity, Uh, regardless of their beliefs, behavior, whatever. Uh, uh, You know, God is loving and he's not going to send anyone to hell. There is no hell. Uh, It's just, it's just eternal bliss uh, and everybody gets to go, go to spend eternity with God. Okay. Uh, The third main view is annihilationism. And this is the view that there's really no afterlife for unregenerate people at all. Um, Unregenerate people, when they die, they are just annihilated. They are destroyed. They they cease to exist. Uh, Regenerate people, they spend eternity with God. But unregenerate people, uh, well, they can't can't spend eternity with God because they didn't believe in Jesus for eternal life. But also, God's not going to send people to be tortured and burned and suffer for all eternity. So he just destroys them. They are annihilated. Okay, so... That's, those are the three main views, eternal conscious torment, universalism, and annihilationism. 
At first view, eternal conscious torment sometimes is referred to as infernalism, sort of to keep the ism parallel there. Infernalism, universalism, uh, annihilationism. Anyway, uh, now there's variations on those three views, sort of different shades or combinations even. So for example, uh, there's a there's a one view that sort of combines eternal conscious torment and annihilationism. Okay, so in this view, uh, they do believe there's a hell, a place of burning and suffering, and that unregenerate people go there, but uh, they don't spend eternity there. Eventually, ultimately, they are destroyed. They cease to exist. Okay, so you can sort of see in this view, uh, it it combines. Infernalism, yes, there's a burning place, with annihilationism, but people cease to exist, okay? So uh, eventually, after some, who knows how long that is, a thousand years, a million years, I don't know. I've never heard anyone say how long it is. Sort of a a purgatory type view almost. All right, so that's sort of one variation. There's another variation, and this is getting closer to answering our question now. Uh, Just as that one I just mentioned uh, sort of mixes infernalism and annihilationism. There's another view that mixes uh, infernalism and universalism. Okay, so uh, in this, this view is often sometimes referred to as ultimate reconciliation. So in this view, uh, unregenerate people, they do die and they are separated from God, uh, maybe into a place of suffering and torment, maybe not. There's, again, different variations and views on that within this camp. Uh, but uh, rather than eventually, ultimately be annihilated, uh, the people who uh, begin eternity separated from God, they are ultimately, eventually, finally reconciled to God. Okay? God extends his grace, and he continues to reach out to them and offer them redemption and forgiveness through all eternity. And in this view, in ultimate reconciliation, eventually, every single person who begins eternity separated from God accepts God's gracious free offer of eternal life, of forgiveness, of restoration, of reconciliation, of redemption. And eventually, you know, how long will it take? Who knows? Million years, billion years, trillion years. Boy, does the word word year even apply to eternity? I sort of don't think so. But uh, however long it takes, eventually, ultimately, everyone will be reconciled to God. Hell will be emptied and so on. Okay, so uh, that's ultimate reconciliation. All right, now, so those are sort of five views. We have the three main views, then two variations, two mixes. Um, And it's that last view that I talked about that the listener wants to know about. She wants to know if ultimate reconciliation is possible. She says, is it possible? All right, now, I do address this in my book, again, on hell. Uh, And in the book, I basically state that well, I think it is possible, I do not think it is likely. Okay? Uh, it is a remote uh, a remote possibility, uh, but I think that it's not very likely to occur. And, and I, I go on to say that this is not because God doesn't offer it. Personally, I think God does offer it. I think God is more than willing, because he's gracious and loving, that if somebody begins eternity separated from him, and for whatever reason, they realize they made a mistake— 
Maybe they never heard the gospel. Who knows? There's a wide variety of reasons for them to have not. Maybe they just uh, got bad teaching throughout their whole life from some of these false pastors and bad teachers are out there and, and never, never, uh, you know, properly heard the free offer of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. I don't know. There's a wide variety of reasons. Maybe they just had bad parenting and someone uh, told them some bad things about God, how God likes to kill people and rape people, or, or uh, let me put it this way, God doesn't do that, but he condemn, He commands certain humans or allows certain humans to do that. And people are like, that's not a God I want to worship. And so they reject God only to find out in the afterlife that God's not like that at all. Okay, is God going to say, well, too bad? <laughs> you didn't understand what I was like, but guess what? I'm going to cause you to suffer and burn for eternity. That just doesn't seem right, does it? In that sense, God is actually affirming their monstrous view of God rather than denying it, but I digress. All right, the point is, I believe God does offer reconciliation to people after, uh, afterwards, okay? Uh, in eternity, in some way, shape, or form. So that is what makes ultimate reconciliation possible, because I believe God does offer it. However, I also give some weight to the human ability to rebel, to human stubbornness. Okay? Humans are fairly stubborn and rebellious creatures. And I believe that God will hold out for all eternity the option that anybody who wants to can be reconciled and redeemed and restored to him. However, I believe there will be Many, many, many humans. Is it the majority of unregenerate humans? I do not know. I'm not going to say. I don't believe it's if it's the majority or the minority. I don't know. But I believe there will be many, many, many humans. Some, I believe, will accept this offer of restoration simply because they didn't understand, didn't hear, wide variety of reasons. But there will be others, many others, who will say, no, I want to go my own way. I don't want to follow you, God. I don't want to be part of your life. I hate you. You know, whatever the reasons might be. Um, and they will continue to live that way in rebellion and in rejection of God for all eternity. So uh, in that sense, that's why I say it's possible but not likely. Because I believe, look, we humans uh, never underestimate our ability to stubbornly continue on a destructive path, all right? A self-destructive path. And even despite God showing us, don't go that way, that way is going to hurt, we still often go that way. And I, we do that in this life, and I don't, just don't see any reason why some humans won't continue to live that way in eternity either. Uh, we, we make our decisions, and then our decisions make us. Okay, every time we make a decision to continue on a certain path, eventually we come to a place in our life where our decisions are guiding, our past decisions are guiding our future path, and, and certain decisions no longer become possible for us. So I think that if a person continues in stubborn rebellion, willfulness, anger, and resentment towards God in this life, and even into eternity, that, that uh, they will continue down that path in eternity as well and uh, ultimate reconciliation will no longer be possible for them because they're too, re too rebellious and too stubborn to, to, to make that change. Okay? So, uh, that and, and Scripture, I think Scripture is describing, this is what Scripture has in mind when it refers to the second death. Okay? Um, they will be living this way in, in selfishness and in stubbornness, uh, they, they will not be experiencing love or grace or mercy, forgiveness. It's, it's a very selfish way of living, but many people live selfishly in this life, and many people will live selfishly in the next life also. 
By the way, I don't know. I don't believe that those people will be burning and suffering and flames and fire for all eternity. Okay, again, read my book, What is Hell? Uh, I do not hold to that the unredeemed will be suffering and screaming and burning in eternity. I do not believe that is what Scripture teaches. Um, That creates a monstrous God, which I cannot worship. Okay, Uh, God is gracious and loving and kind, and he's not going to torture and suffer and, and, and torment people simply because they don't want to believe in him or they don't believe in him. Anyway, I cover all that more in my book, uh, What is Hell? You can get it if you want. But uh, that's, that's, my belief. that's my belief on ultimate reconciliation. It's possible, but not likely. And so that's sort of the brief answer. Now, um, Ephesians 2.2 does sort of address this. So that's where we're going to be going next. So this is the verse we're looking at in today's podcast study. And it sort of relates to what we were just looking at in reference to hell and unregenerate people after they die. But uh, it's not referring to unregenerate people after they die, but unregenerate people or disobedient people while they live here on earth. And I believe that what we see, what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it describes how people live in this life, and it also describes how some unregenerate people will live in eternity as well. So to sort of understand how things work in eternity, it does help to understand how things work in this life also. And so uh, let's just begin with sort of what we saw last time in our study of Ephesians 2.1. And in our study last time, I sort of summarized all of Ephesians chapter 2. That's how we began. I, I said that Ephesians chapter 2, the whole chapter, is divided up into three sections. There's the problem. Paul states the problem in verses 1 through 3. Then he describes the solution, which comes through Jesus in verses 4 through 10, and then he describes the application, what we as the church are supposed to do with what we see in Jesus. And that that application section is verses 11 through 22. Now, what I argued is many people misunderstand the problem and the solution. And the reason, and then this application section just sort of comes out of nowhere. But the whole chapter can make a whole lot more sense if we reverse, we sort of read the chapter in reverse, if we reverse engineer it. If we start with the application and then work our way backward, that helps us better understand the problem. And the application section, which we will get to eventually, is that we as humans are supposed to live in unity and love and, and, and grace with one another rather than an enmity and discord and violence. Okay, so that's the application section. And if that's the application, then the problem needs to fit with that uh, here in verses 1 through 3. And that is exactly what we are discovering. Last time we began looking at Ephesians 2, 1, where Paul talked, uh, said that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we learned that what this means is that we are dead. We're not functioning properly the way God wants us to function. Instead, we're dominated by sin, which is the opposite of the way God wants us to function. And sin isn't just simple, simply disobeying God. Sin, according to Scripture, uh, is defined by Scripture, is primarily uh, d- described or defined as violence against other human beings. Okay, that is what sin is in Scripture. Violence and sort of the things that lead to violence against other human beings. Ephesians 2.2 picks up this idea. Here's what the verse says, jumping right into the sort of the middle of of Paul's sentence, but we've just summarized two ones. Here's what two, two, in which 
you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All right, to begin with, then, Paul says uh, that these are the ways in which we used to live. Uh, the word there for live is, uh, or used to live is peripateo. It really means to walk about. So my preference is rather than used to live, would, would I think this should read, in which we used to walk. Okay, this is, uh, this is the way that uh, our, our former walk used to be. It was a death walk. We're on a walk, right? We're going somewhere. We're doing something. And uh, this walk, in the words of John Stott, it was no pleasant promenade in the countryside. <laughs> okay, this was, this was a walk, and it, it was a walk of slavery and trespass and sin and violence and death. Okay, we're walking the plank, and forcing others to walk the plank, and we don't even know it. It's the road to destruction, and if we continue to go down that road, then we will meet destruction. That, by the way, is where Paul's headed there in verse three a reference to wrath, but we'll talk about that next time. It's sort of like lemmings, right? <laughs> lemmings are blindly following the crowd until they fall off a cliff. Well, that's what we were doing. We were headed for destruction and we don't even know it. And uh, it's who we were. It's what we did. It's how we were walking. It's the journey, the path, the road that we were on. Now, in the rest of verse two, Paul uses three phrases to describe the way we used to walk. Uh, But all three phrases refer to the same reality, right? So we're going to discuss the three phrases, and then I will define, I will identify the single reality that Paul has in view here. All right, so first the phrase, the first phrase is the ways of this world. This refers to how the world operates. Uh, It's a reference to what I like to call, and I learned this from Walter Wink, who I referred to previously, I think last week's study on on verse 1, the ways of the world uh, refers to the world domination system. It's sort of the rules, the methods, the unwritten or unspoken rules. Some of them are written and spoken, but but many are unwritten, uh, on how the world operates, how things work. This is the way things are, okay? And the world domination system is dominated by violence. And threats of violence. If you don't do what we want, then we will do this to you. We will force you. And there's various forms of force. Yes, violence, but there's also economic pressure um, and, and all, you know other things as well, withholding benefits and privileges and so on. Okay, and so it, it consists of rules. Yes, uh, but but some of them are spoken, some of them are unspoken, and it's not just governments, but also you know militaries, institutions, financial institutions, educational institutions, businesses of all sorts. They all follow the ways of this world, the world domination system, and um, that is what Paul is referring to here: how the world works. Honer, in his commentary, says the world is a satanically organized system that hates and opposes all that is godly. Yes, and I would add to that, with the use of violence. That's what's going on here. The the world is dominated, guided by violence, as we've seen last week in our study of 2.1. By the way, the world is an important term in Scripture. It is one of the words I will eventually define and discuss in great detail in my Gospel Dictionary online course, which you can take by joining my discipleship group. The third, I'm sorry, the second uh, phrase that Paul refers to here 
uses here is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Okay, so we followed the ways of the world first. Second, we follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Who is the ruler or the prince of the kingdom of the air? We saw this ruler mentioned back in 121 when Paul mentioned that Christ is above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and title. It's a list of five spiritual beings, and the first one is rule or ruler. It comes first, and so um, that, that's, that's referring us back to that is what, what Paul is doing here. Now, what about the kingdom? And I'll mention that briefly. We'll, go, we'll return to that. But let's talk about the kingdom of the air first. The kingdom of the air is referring to sort of uh, the demonic realm, I would say. And so I would think that the, the ruler then is the ruler of the demonic realm, which of course is, is the, Satan, the spirit of Satan. And uh, we'll, again, we will discuss this more in a bit. Okay, so the kingdom of the air, it's, yes, the demonic realm, demonic world, but I don't want you to necessarily think of demons as these little creatures flying around. It's the way it's often depicted in movies and books and so on. Sort of uh, the broken, invisible forces that, that guide the ways of this world, okay? Uh, thoughts and movements in this world. It's the, Paul describes it as the kingdom of the air. So what, what is air? Air is surrounding us all the time. We can't see it. We can't feel it, but it's there. Um, it's, it's, you know, we can't hear it, but we know it's there. It sort of reminds me a little bit as I'm just describing this, uh, Morpheus. You see the movie, The Matrix? When Morpheus tries to describe what The Matrix is to Neo. And he says, it's all around us. We can't see it. We can't feel it, but it's there. It's the air we breathe, right? So, so I, I don't remember the words he used, but the analogy is really sort of a, a good one with the kingdom of the air, the matrix of the kingdom of the air. Uh, it enslaves us. The kingdom of the air is surrounding us, and it enslaves us just like the matrix did. And we, we can't break free from it on our own because we can't even see it. We can't feel it. Uh, in fact, we don't even know that we are enslaved by it. It's around us all the time. It's in the very air that we breathe, sort of. Uh, we live by it. We operate by it. We are governed by it, even though we don't know it exists. All right? And, and so what is this? How, do we, how can we recognize it? Well, uh, that's what Paul is going to talk about in verse 3 when we get there. So I will save that discussion for next time. Just sort of hold on to that thought. All right? Uh, final, the third phrase that Paul uses here in verse 2 is the spirit at work in the disobedient. This is um, the, th the third thing we followed, which resulted in transgression and sin, is the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. All right, this is uh, sort of the impersonal and immaterial force or nature or characterization that is present within this world, which leads us to disobedience. And the spirit of disobedience here is set in direct contrast with the spirit of wisdom and revelation from Ephesians 1.17. Okay, we talked about the spirit of wisdom and revelation previously when we looked at that verse. So uh, what does the spirit of wisdom and revelation do? Well, the spirit guides us into the way God wants us to live in this world. So therefore, the opposite here, the spirit in the disobedient, that work in the disobedient, is the spirit that guides us to live in ways that are contrary to God. If the spirit of wisdom and revelation shows us how God wants us to live, then the spirit of disobedience shows us, uh, leads us to live in ways that God doesn't want us to live. Okay, so that's that's the, the this third phrase here leads us to disobedience. All right, so what then? Paul has these three phrases 
that we've looked at very briefly, but what is sort of the one reality that all three of these phrases refer to? Hmm. I don't know. Could it be Satan? (laughs) Yes. Yes, it is. It's Satan. I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm not trying to joke about it here using that reference from the church lady from Saturday Night Live. I don't know. Could it be Satan? Okay. Now, the thing is, is that church, uh, the church lady skit from Saturday Night Live was sort of funny, and this is why they did it. Because, as you well know, many Christians tend to see Satan under every bush, behind every corner, right? Every problem in the world, it's Satan. Oh, that's Satan. And so people made fun of it. Oh, it's Satan. Okay, could it be Satan? Christians see Satan everywhere. Now, the sad reality is that uh, many Christians do not understand what Satan is or how Satan works, And ironically, sadly, here's the real irony, when many Christians point to Satan behind every rock and bush and around every corner, that behavior is actually, in and of itself, satanic. Okay? To see Satan under every rock and bush and behind, around every corner, is to behave satanically. Crazy, huh? That Christian uh, tendency to blame everything on Satan is itself satanic. Wow. I know that's shocking. So let's unpack it a little bit, right? The word Satan, what does it mean? Well, it comes from, it's actually a Hebrew word, ha-satan, ha-satan, the Satan. Okay, it means the accuser, or the, it is the spirit of accusation. Again, by the way, I will eventually include a gospel dictionary entry on Satan. So it's not there yet, but it will be eventually uh, in my gospel dictionary online course. Now, the word, um, it doesn't refer, again, when most people think of Satan, what comes to mind is this guy, he's either red or he's dressed in a red suit, head to toe, maybe his skin is red. He's got this pointy tail, he carries a pitchfork, he's got horns on his head, Okay, and he goes around trying to get people to do bad things, uh, whatever those bad things are, okay? And it's a sin. And um, so that's what most people have in mind, and that's that's not what Satan is. Satan has nothing to do with that. In fact, I would argue, same way I did before, that just like demons aren't really these little creatures, invisible creatures that run around, Satan's not a creature, you know, this being, this entity either, uh, exactly the way many Christians think about Satan. Satan refers to uh, these three phrases. Paul uses these three phrases rather than just refer to Satan. He's describing the spirit of accusation in this world using these three phrases in verse 2 to to describe this entity, this force that is guiding our, our actions and our behavior and our thought patterns in this world. We can't really see or feel Satan because Satan exists in like the air around us, the air we breathe. It's the spirit that is at work in all disobedience. It leads people to be disobedient, to do and be the things that God doesn't want us to do and be. The spirit of Satan, the spirit, the accusing spirit is the spirit of this age, the spirit of humanity. 
the spirit of accusation and blame. Okay, accusation and blame is the way of this world. If you were to find one key characteristic of how this world works, at its core, at its root, is accusation, condemnation. Okay, we, no matter who you are, this is governments and business and bankers and institutions and just even interfamily squabbles and squabbles with your neighbors. It all comes down to one thing, and that is accusation. And remember, what does Satan mean? Accuser. Okay, so uh, th- this is how this is the, the spirit of the world is accusation. We think everyone is guilty. We ourselves are innocent. We condemn and we accuse other people. It makes us feel better about ourselves. It makes us feel better about how we are mistreating other people. If we can accuse them, we can call them monsters. We can dehumanize them. We can call them names and treat them as less than human so that we can say, well, they're the sinners. We are the righteous ones. And since we are the righteous and they're the sinners, that means God is on our side. And since God is on our side, we can mistreat them. We can abuse them. We can even call for their death. We can go to war with them, okay, because God wants them dead just as much as we do. We call for violence and bloodshed in God's name. And guess what? This is satanic. This is the spirit of Satan, the spirit of the accuser. And guess what? It's not just unregenerate people who are guilty of living this way, right? In fact, I would say, sadly, that religious people are guilty of living by the spirit of this age, the spirit of the accuser, just as much, maybe more, than non-religious people. When I say religious, I'm not referring just to Christians, but religious people in general. Yes, Christian religious people, but other religions as well. Religious people are adept, we are experts even, at using our religious writings and our religious rules to what? Condemn and accuse other people so that we can justify our holy wars against them, against our enemies, our crusades, right? Our, our boycotts and our picketing and our name-calling and our, our calling for God's judgment upon our enemies. We are certain that our enemies are God's enemies, and so therefore we engage in religious zeal against our enemies to end their life, to get rid of their businesses, to take them out of office, to whatever it is. Okay? This is accusation, and it is the way the world works. It is the spirit that runs the world, the spirit of accusation. So we call for the death of our enemies, rather than, as Jesus said, to love our enemies. So this is the the, the concern, the problem that Paul is identifying here is the exact same problem that Jesus spoke about and revealed throughout his life and ministry, all the way through his death, burial, and resurrection. And indeed, there in the Sermon on the Mountain, when he called us to love our enemies. Paul is concerned with that same thing here. That we religious people commit sin in God's name. We accuse our enemies in the name of God. And Paul is going to call us, in verses 4 through 10 when we get there, to turn away from this, the spirit of accusation. This is really in the application section, I guess. He's going to show us how Jesus revealed it to us. That's the solution. The application, verses 11 to 22. Turn away from the spirit of accusation and turn instead to the Holy Spirit of love and acceptance. 
Which shows us here, I think this is very insightful. Notice here at the end of verse 2, Paul uses this word disobedient. This is the spirit at work in those who are disobedient. Paul could have used other words here. He could have used unbelievers or unregenerate, something like that, to, to specifically refer to people who were not Christians. But I think he uses this word disobedient here because he knows, as I know, as you know, that Christians also can be disobedient. And if he's referring here to the spirit of the accuser, spirit of accusation, then he knows, as I know, as you now know, that Christians also can engage in accusation, can be disobedient in accusing others. So that's why Paul is using the word disobedient here, because he's showing us that he's trying to convict us that we ourselves live in this way also. When we Christians engage in accusation and condemnation, when we call for the death of our enemies, for the destruction of our enemies, okay, when we encourage violence in the name of God, it is then that we are not following the Holy Spirit, but are instead following the spirit of this age, the spirit of the kingdom of the air, the satanic spirit of blame and accusation. It is then that Christians are, in fact, satanic. I know, that's very strong words. But I think that's what Paul, I think you're beginning to understand why this description of the problem in verses 1 through 3 is so vastly different from what we might have heard from our pulpits and in our Christian books and in our Bible studies. Usually, when Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3 is taught and read, it allows us to point the finger to somebody else. Oh, look at all those sinners over there. Oh, yeah, I used to live that way, but I don't live that way any longer. But you're beginning to see that this description of the great problem that Paul is describing for us here uh, is pointing the finger at us as well. It's Yes, it's pointed the finger at the people over there. The problem's with the whole world. This is the way the whole world works. But it's not just them. The problem is with us as well. The problem is universal. It's not just a description of what they do, but it's also a description of what we do. Yeah, I know. Paul says this is the way we used to walk. Okay? But sadly, the way we used to walk is the way we still walk many times. I'm talking to myself here as well. I'm still guilty of this. We, we created these habits, these ways of walking, these paths. We made our decisions, and now our decisions are making us. Okay? We used to walk the ways in the world, and guess what? In many ways, we still do. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to show us how Jesus revealed this to us, how Jesus showed us a different way to walk, and then he's going to call us to live in that new way, to walk in that new way, to show the world a new way of living, a new way of walking. And that is where we are headed in the rest of Ephesians chapter 2. Now, before we get to that solution, how Jesus revealed it and the application, how we can live in light of it, there's one more verse which will go on to describe our problem. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. It's where we are headed next time. Make sure you don't miss it. It's sort of the summary of everything Paul has said about our problem. He reveals one last thing, one critical element of the problem. 
and where it leads us, where it is headed. It's a dire situation that is, we're headed towards a cliff of destruction. We're lemmings walking off the cliff, and Paul is calling us to stop it. So uh, make sure you join us next time when we can consider Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 as well. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast episode. I know it's a bit of a downer, sort of a shocking statement that we are living according to the spirit of this age, the satanic spirit of accusation, but it's convicting and necessary if we're going to truly understand our situation and if we're going to understand what Jesus did to fix it and how we can live in light of Jesus as well. So it's important to get through this darkness so that we can arrive at the dawn and the new day that follows. Thanks for listening. If you have questions or comments, just visit me at redeeminggod.com and you can use the contact me section at the bottom to send in your questions or comments. If you have a question or comment about this specific study, though, I'd be best to leave those down in the comment section so that others can interact with you there as well. Uh, and also, if you want more to, read, to, to learn more what I was referring to earlier with that uh, discussion about hell, And my particular view on what I believe the Bible teaches about hell, make sure you pick up that book, What is Hell? You can get it pretty much wherever books are sold. All right, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3.